This is part two of a conversation that I'm having with Michael Park Ingram, who is a South Korean-born adoptee. Michael, welcome back. Thanks for having me. So let's go ahead and we'll continue this conversation, and we're going to talk about Korea and maybe our perceptions of what we have of the country and maybe what reality is. Sounds great. Sounds great. I, I'd love to start with the article that you just showed, because I think it reflects on mm-hmm. where I kind of left off on my special day in terms okay. of my uh, So I'm going to announce this article, and I think it's actually archived at the Korean Quarterly. Uh, it's called Welcome to the Monkey House, the Korean Quarterly Winter Edition 2020, Volume 23, Number 2. So if our listeners want to look that up, they can go look at the archives of Korean Quarterly. But Michael, I had shared this article with you about Welcome to the Monkey House and about how uh, it was the comfort women legalized prostitution in the country servicing military personnel. Uh, Absolutely. And so on my special day where I was, it literally has no other purpose but the strip of military bars uh, except for the the release of um, anxiety and pleasure of the military personnel. I understand they needed to be kept happy. They're away from home doing important work, but what they are offered is very simple, very basic. It does not look pretty. It is still probably much the same as it was back in the 60s and 70s um, in terms of the look and uh, the offerings. It, it's seriously just a strip of eight eight to ten bars, maybe, right across the street from the military base with a few restaurants in between. Of course, now in modern Korea, there, there are some additional touches, but it really is, I would say, intact as the way it was. So I think uh, anybody would say, oh, well, that's different. They're not doing those kinds of things anymore. I think to the person who is saying that to themselves is probably in denial. Because even here in the United States, we know that those activities go on. And it might not be so much in your face, but it happens even here in small town America. Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, we want to create the narrative uh, that best sits Uh, suits our temperament and our ideas about ourselves and about the cultures we live in. But frankly, um, hostesses are still very prominent in these bars. It's just that now, apparently, the workers are Filipino, Malaysian. We've we've just imported different products, but it's the same palace of of pleasure. Things really haven't changed. um, But interestingly, my, we'll definitely get into this a little further, but my birth mother, I was shared pictures of her during my time. Um, and actually one of the pictures shows her holding a baby. And my brother always thought that it wasn't him, although it's purported to be him. Uh, he thinks it's me that she's holding. But what what is just, was against my initial thought and belief was that these women were stunning, stunning, poised, beautiful women. Okay. It's not the idea of a hostess or a prostitute that we may have imagined growing up in America, 
these were women that were well put together, well dressed, well presented. And my birth mother came from a farm. So having read that in my adoption file and then seeing these pictures of this beautiful woman with her hair done in these elegant clothes just destroyed my sense, my idea of what I had thought my origin story of my birth mother was. So she had style, grace, poise. She looked like she was on top of the world. It did not look like she was uh, playing this role of uh, a woman in service, servitude to an industry um, that, you know, is wrought with, with all sorts of trouble. And, you know, here's, here's the woman that I, I would be proud of, you know, if I were a small child, I'm still proud of her today. These women were not, they were just working. It was a job. And I don't, you know, only God can judge, you know, person to person. So I cannot say my job is any better than their job. Um, we are all, you know, humble in God's eyes and, and should be that way. And certainly my mother did some amazing things to bring me to the life that I can enjoy now. I mean, I grew up in a privileged home with good parents, good family and everything I needed. So I, I am so grateful for what she did and even the decision she she had to make the very hard decision to give me that better life by, you know, knowing and understanding that being mixed race in Korea in the late 60s was just going to be too much, too much for me, too much for her. Um, women were were really put down in Korean society, not only for the work that they did, but for the mixed race children, for the children out of wedlock. I mean, these were Confucius times in Korea, not, you know, the now sort of um, American influence capitalist, you know, sort of underneath based society that you see, which is running so well. I, I think Korea runs better than the United States at this point in terms of a country, its harmony and, and its support of its population. Michael, no. I want to just interject there, you know, sure. like what you said about the the uh, women who were the hostesses and whatever, you know, I just want to say that I think that they were strong, they were courageous to have done that type of work just to survive. And the perception that we're given is that they were like these really terrible people, you know, hookers, if I would say, you know, and it's like, if you need to take care of your family or whatever, and you you do that I mean that I think takes courage and so how do we get rid of that whole perception and understand what they did they did for survival you know and I was thinking also that a lot of these women probably had the hopes that they would meet somebody who would actually really love them take care of them and bring them to the United States where everybody everybody wants to flock to the United States because this is you know touted as the place of opportunity and freedom so who wouldn't want to try to find someone who could bring you here? And, you know, I had relayed to you this story about when I was in high school where this 
guy who was uh, ignorant would call me an oriental slut. And I thought, you know, I, I didn't really understand what that meant. And then I got older, but I knew that it was something to be ashamed of. And then I got older and I kind of understood, you know, what that whole history was, you know, from Korea, the things that people said about the Vietnamese, because we were at the end of the Vietnamese War when at the time that I was in high school. I would like to say just in this space for anyone listening, for our Korean women, any woman around the world that has to do that kind of work for survival, instead of shaming them, we need to be finding ways to lift them up in thoughts, in prayer, in meditation. 100%. I mean, my, my birth mother really did this to support her family. As farmers in a country that had a horrible economy and everyone was almost destitute, facing starvation, she went to work as the sole earner of a family that had to support uncles and aunts, um, many of which she she had to leave her small town to go to a bigger town to work. So many of these family members she left behind, lost contact with over the years. Like she had to she had to leave her family and leave her future in that family to provide for that family. What she did was absolutely noble. And our idea, our conception of uh, hostessing or prostitution is very different from what what we understand, you know, what we think of like in the 70s as a prostitute. No, these these women were dating these GIs. My mother had a, a serious relationship with my birth father and Subsequently, the man she married after was also an African-American GI person. So I have two younger half-brothers who are also mixed the same as I am. So absolutely, my birth mother was earnest in her pursuit of her profession, possibly providing that ticket out of a poor country to even have a better life and to provide better also for her family. But, you know, now we were programmed to think of as really bad, but was actually just so noble. I mean, my birth mother was 21 when she had me. She had already been working in this industry that she she did not ask to work in, but that was what needed to be done. She made the sacrifice. I, I mean, I I don't know if I could have when I was a teenager in early 20s, I was so selfish. I wouldn't have put anyone else before me. What she did was 100% noble. I applaud the women that did it. There are sunlight centers in Korea for the elderly, and many of whom were in this industry, and many of whom were ostracized. Their groups are really their, their only friends. I mean, you you almost can't come back and fit yourself back into a position where you want to be, where you know you should be, when you have faced a society that tells you, no, you're not, you're not that, you're this, go sit over there. Visiting some of these sunlight centers where you would get to hear a little bit more of the stories, you certainly have a connection to these women as just workers, not as people that had to go through and suffer and live to 
a dirty life that led to needles and drugs and addiction. No, these are women that, that just went to work, did their work. And now I think we are celebrating them and, you know, from everything from the comfort women getting a settlement to um, now in 2019, they dedicated a park in Peju uh, called Uma Pum to the birth mothers of Korean children that were given up for adoption. Um, actually, my tour was the first tour to visit the park, and it was part of the dedication of the park. So I, I actually got to write a nice little piece. It's with my photo in the park in Peju, Umapum. And I, I was just so grateful to be a part of that and and to be connected to that part of my history now, um, because it's it's not my story to tell or to judge, but it was my, the onus was on me to find it out and to find the truth. And I think I think I came pretty close to understanding you know, most of it. And now my understanding is that, boy, these women did incredible things for not only their family, but their country. And certainly I, I reap the benefits a hundred percent. Can you talk about how you came to find your birth mother? All right. I, I remember when I was quite small, I think I was probably about six or seven years old when I found my, my adoption file looking through my dad's file cabinets. And um, I mean, my parents would have shown it to me. It just never came up. But I, I remember I was I was young and I was almost scared to look. You know, I didn't want to know the truth because I had this life. I was inserted into it. I was comfortable with it. Um, I was young, naive. I, I didn't have any societal problems weighing in on me yet. So, you know, I, I really did have an ideal a situation. So looking at my adoption file, you almost have to, to wonder, you know, the questions start entering your, your head. Uh, where did, where was I born? What, what was it like during that time? What does my mother look like? Do I have a medical history that I should worry about? Like all the questions just start seeping in, you know, you open that floodgate, right? And um, for me, it just created that that sense of wonder um, and made me curious. And that curiosity led to my search. So my search started very young mentally. And then when I actually started preparing to do it physically, I, I was, you know, in my teens. I had started to write hopes, asking for my adoption file. Uh, there were faxes that went back and forth to prove my identity. Um, back in those days, there were a lot of forms you had to fill out. Um, I think it's a little easier now with electronic mail and such. I don't think anyone needs to send any snail mail or faxes these days to find out more information. It started the traditional ways. You call the adoption agency. You get all the information you can. You start calling all the agencies surrounding um, that may be able to help you, uh, veterans, aid societies, gosh, you could go everywhere, right? Nice long rabbit hole for any adoptee out there. But I, I think sticking with, with the basic facts of your search and pursuing those uh, can be helpful. But really the key to my search, and I had been filming this, interviews with me, filming 
everything that I've done in terms of my search, filming phone calls, filming letters, documenting all the, the photos of files that I had. I, I mean, I've even filmed a therapy session with uh, Dr. Siri Satnam Singh, who um, has worked with a lot of uh, celebrities, because I think, you know, addiction and trauma, you know, you can pick apart certain things about that and it's relatable to adoption um, in terms of identity and finding your true self and coping, certainly coping mechanisms. But all right. So, I mean, again, like your investment emotionally, mentally, spiritually, like toward your search takes a lot out of me um, or did at times. So I, I would stop and start, but I, I wholeheartedly did my search for over 30 years, but it wasn't until not the first, not the second, not the third, not even the fourth DNA test, which I did at the police station in Seoul, but the fifth DNA test uh, that I did gave me a little hit on what appeared to be a first cousin. Now, if anyone has done any DNA tests for being mixed race, it opens the whole floodgate of half my uh, identifying DNA test relatives are white. So there I see the five generation long interruption of my DNA through the rape of my ancestor who is African-American. So not only did I find out in my 50s that I'm part white, but now I get to see the lineage of the people from the original rapist of my ancestor. I mean, I can say it in that way. It doesn't, I don't look at these people on the DNA tests and think of them that way, but I cannot deny, but say that, well, here's this little uh, European uh, break in my DNA chain and where did it come from? Right. So I don't think during slavery, it was uh, a consensual relationship. So let, let's be honest here, but uh, getting back to my birth mother. Wow. So first cousin hit came up. It turns out that it was actually my nephew. So his mother reached out to me through the DNA website. I believe this one got to me through 23andMe. And after the fifth DNA test, I had given up my search. I thought, all right, I'm in my 50s now. I've done this search for over 30 years. I'm never going to find her. Been to Korea looking for her. You know, sent out to the universe my ask. Please help me find my birth mother. Well, the universe responded. And my nephew was curious because his grandfather, my brother's father, had passed away in the 90s. So he didn't know much about his African-American roots. They actually all live in Virginia, which is right near D.C. and the African-American Museum of, of History. After his visit there, he was very curious, took the DNA test. My brothers did not take a DNA test. My birth mother actually told them that I had been taken away by my birth father. I'm not sure why she told them that. And that's her, you know, her choice. I, I really don't care. Like I found them and whatever she needed to do to create her story to move on. 
that's that's okay with me. Um, she did her best in my time with me. Like I couldn't thank her enough. My nephew's mom, my sister-in-law now, reached out to me and said, first, co first cousin, I don't know you. Who are you? I'm like, yeah, you don't know me. I was born in Korea. So uh, my African-American roots, I'm not sure of, but maybe you can help me with them. She's like, wait, you were born in Korea? No way. You've been, you've been the one who, my, my husband has been looking for. So that's how I got to know my two half brothers. We exchanged photos, made sure, all right, this is the guy, right? And um, I was born with some distinguishing marks on my hands. I was born with six fingers. So I had little warts right here at the base of my pinky on either hand. And so my birth mother, that was her first question, put up your hands. And you can actually see maybe a little crease there. It's my little scar from the removal. They kept getting cut on things. You know, they catch little warts on things that I would grab and, and so I had them removed. But she, that was her first question. And um, we, we met, of course, I was just, I couldn't be contained. I flew down to Virginia, stayed with my, one of my two brothers, got to meet the whole family, got to meet my birth mother, recorded that as well. So we spent the day together. I've physically been in contact with her for one day. I call her occasionally. I don't think she's open to a like, I love you relationship. You're, she called me her son when we all got together with my brothers and went out for a Chinese buffet. Um, you know, it was just, it was just, you know, the, the chapter that I needed, you know, in my, my book, my story, I guess it is kind of closure in a way, but it's still open as a relationship and still growing. Like I, I can't harvest what I just planted with, with my birth mother and with my brothers. So we are developing our, our relationship, our friendship, our, you know, sense of family. I mean, they're, they're my witness, you know, um, when my family dies, off. I mean, I have children, but, you know, I think in life, it's important to have those people that know you for your history. And there's no longer history than my birth mother in knowing me. And now my brothers who don't know me personally, physically, we've only been together once, but it was really a great time. Like I look like my youngest brother. And what um, year was this, Michael? What year was this? 2019 right 2000. before the pandemic okay. yeah so and your we birth were... mother lives in virginia yes she does okay. so and what was the story that she how she got here to the united states so she um after being abandoned by my birth father she met her husband not too long after i think you mentioned earlier uh sort of the social dynamic that you know, here these foreigners were in Korea, the American GIs, and they were all treated equally. And back in the late 60s, I mean, you know, civil rights just passed a few years earlier than my birth. And so for these 
19-year-old black GIs to be in a foreign country and to be thought of as an equal by even a woman that may be trying to gain favor, you know, by monetary means, even by hostesses and prostitutes, imagine what that must have felt like. Not to have a sign on the door that said whites only, coloreds only. And, you know, my birth father was from the South, like Amer like a lot of the black GIs back then. I mean, that was a way out, you know, being in the South, join the army, get an education or the GI Bill, you know, would support an education. But, you know, just think about the comfort that they felt. They didn't have to fear danger of being beat up or killed by being with a woman with you know, pearl skin. I just, you know, I think back and I think, wow, you know, those GIs, you know, really, really were exploring the world for the first time. And again, you know, I can't sit in judgment of things other people do. I can only judge my own life. So, and act accordingly. So, you know, these GIs were doing what they were, you know, supposed to do, go to work at the base and blow off steam on on their time off. You know, meeting my birth mother was, you know, a dream that all adoptees, not all, but, you know, majority of adoptees have. And to have that completed was a miracle, nothing short of a miracle. And it took 30 years and I'm lucky it only took 30 years and that I found her. Many people don't and they search 50, 60 years and they die with that, you know, wanting in their heart to know so I, I am just so, so fortunate to have found her and I'll take whatever I can get. I mean, my birth mother told me not to send her flowers on Mother's Day, not to, you know, basically she doesn't want me wasting money on her and doting on her. And it's like the only thing I want to do, right? So, or that I've, I felt I wanted to do, but really just, I have to let it be organic and let her have her space, let my brother's you know, have their space if they need it. Like, I can't just insert myself into a situation and be like, love me, man. I was, I was the first. So, um, you know, in time, I really hope to hear that again. You're my son. I want to be around my brothers again, even though I have family and, and enough friends around, like I'm a happy person, but you know, that's a new chapter that I'm just now starting to get a chance to write. That adoption search was one thing and healed that part, that longing, that aching that I had. But this is a new part. This is the real part. This is like the beginning part of something that I never expected to have. So in meeting my birth mother, yes, man, what a relief, what a gift. But it's just starting now and, and I can't force it. So, you know, it's coming along slow and certainly like the pandemic happened right after I was like, man, I'm going to come down next summer. I'm going to bring my kids. We're going to go on a motorcycle ride together. Like my older, my younger brothers love riding motorcycles too. Like we're, we're similar in many ways, even though we have different birth fathers and we have similar problems we're we're very much the same and uh, it's nice to have that kindred sense and to to see that reflection in others that i never got to see in my own family it being caucasian 
you know. Are uh, your think, adoptive parents alive, Michael? Uh, so my dad passed away five years ago, six years ago now. My mother's still alive. Uh, her physical condition is not great. Her mental condition, though, is still pretty good. So I'm blessed to have her around. My sisters are all around and doing great. I mean, health issues, we've all had them. COVID changed the world. So we we do things very differently now. But um, yeah, my sister was just, my youngest sister was just here in Toronto for my oldest son's high school graduation. Love my family dearly. And, and great thing about recovery is, it helped me to have a relationship again that means something with my family and family members. So, um, in making amends uh, to my family members, I haven't done it all yet. Really, the pandemic has only brought me back to Chicago once uh, since 2019, uh, just before I got sober. So, um, having been sober three and a half years, I've really only made a few of the important amends that I need to make. But wow, yeah, I you know, the gift of recovery is that I get to have a closer relationship to not only myself and to my higher power, but to my family, to others around me who I may not have given my best, you know, attention and time to. So, yeah. Things are, so I just things have uh, about a minute left here. So do you want to say a final, a final statement? Wow. Wow. Well, really, thank you for this opportunity to um, get in touch with some of those feelings again. Um, you know, what what a journey it's been as an adoptee, personally, to overcome some of the barriers that I thought were there, that I had only made up in my own mind, to uh, get to explore with other adoptees, uh, some of their stories. Um, I think being an adoptee, I, I forget about a lot of the time, but it is really important to, to be accountable to um, yourself. That child in you, you know what? You owe it as an adult to go back to that child and ask that younger version of you, am I doing everything that you wanted me to do? Am I exploring all those things that you wanted to explore did I create the barriers that has held me back from my own truth in my own journey as an adoptee? I think that it's really important to go back and to, to visit that with oneself as an adoptee, um, because I think we limit ourselves in many things in life. And adoptee, being an adoptee is no different than, uh, you know, having some some accent of your culture or some uh, part of your history, like everyone else. I mean, it's just an extension of where we come from and who we are. But it, for many of us, it, it's been challenging um, because the look doesn't fit uh, the feeling inside. Being adopted into a family that you may not look like, you know, you fit in necessarily, and you may grow up feeling that in some way. Uh, so thank you for uh, the opportunity to get back in touch with that. It's it's actually been a while since um, I, I've thought deep and hard. So thank you for your time. Um, and for all the other adoptees, I, I hope you persevere with your own journey, whatever that may be, and your own search and keep your head up because being an adoptee uh, doesn't necessarily mean to have a stigma 
It just means you're you're extra something in some way. And you're certainly loved um, not only by uh, God being a child of God, but loved by um, loved by many, I'm sure. And uh, we can't we can't discount that uh, just because we're adopted. Power thank up, y'all. Thank you, Janice. Thank you so much. Um, and thank you for those wise words and for sharing your story, Michael. Again, thank you for having me. It's been a pleasure. Thank you.